You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome to the Dangerous History Podcast. This is episode 121 of the Dangerous History Podcast, and this is going to be a DHP movie review on the movie Ravenous, which is one of the few high-quality horror movies I know of that also seriously addresses some historical themes. And this, of course, being Halloween, and I can tell we're in October because it's only getting up into the 80s where I live. So, ooh, bring your parka. Nonetheless, despite the fact that I have horrific envy towards those of you who live in places where there actually is a fall, it's one of the biggest things I miss from my brief time living out of the tropics, is fall. But even down here in the swampy sandbar that I call home, I still love this time of year. It starts to cool off at least a tiny bit. And I absolutely love Halloween, I love scary stories, I love horror movies, the whole nine yards. So I decided to do a DHP movie review that would fit the spirit of the season and also have some real historical elements to it. The movie Ravenous came out in 1999 and was directed by the late Antonia Bird. Wikipedia refers to the film genre-wise as a black comedy horror suspense film, and I guess that's about as good a description as any, although I should emphasize that the comedy in it is not like ha-ha comedy. So don't think of it in those terms. It's not something like, I don't know, Army of Darkness, where there's almost like slapstick humor in it. It's not like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that, it's just not that kind of movie. The stars of the film include Guy Pearce, Robert Carlyle, David Arquette, and Jeffrey Jones, who, by the way, if you don't know Jeffrey Jones... He was convicted of some child pornography charges just a few years after this film was made, and he's kind of, he's done a little bit of acting work since then, but not surprisingly, he's not nearly as productive of an actor as he used to be. And, you know, setting aside whatever he may have done and all that, obviously horrible stuff, I've always thought that Jeffrey Jones was a really good character actor, I have to say. And if you don't know who he is, he's the red-haired guy who played a lot of often kind of jerk-ish characters in, in various movies in the 80s and 90s. He's probably most famous for playing Mr. Rooney in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, so you probably know who I'm talking about now if you didn't recognize his name. The film Ravenous is set in the aftermath of the Mexican-American War, in California in the late 1840s, up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And it's based and inspired in part on the infamous story of the Donner Party that I'm sure most of you listening have heard. 
and some other examples of similar stories of cannibalism in the Old West American frontier era of the 19th century, in which groups of people going west, you know, wagon trains, that sort of thing, would make a miscalculation on what month to go through the high mountains, or perhaps they had bad luck and and the bad weather came in much earlier than normal, that sort of thing. And they'd get trapped up in some cave in the mountains in huge snows and freezing weather, and they would end up running out of supplies, and eventually some of them would start dying, and eventually some of them would start eating each other, that kind of thing. And the movie Ravenous has blended that element in with a little bit of supernatural element too, although it's not anything really blatant, it's kind of some subtle supernatural elements. But anyway, before I get into the heart of my synopsis and review of this film, I have some housekeeping things I want to mention. First off, as many of you probably noticed, if you follow me on social media, or if you just sort of follow things being posted on my website, a week and a half ago, Hurricane Matthew was bearing down, seeming at least for a while to be coming like straight for my street almost. And it caused a pretty severe disruption in kind of my routine and my plans and kind of knocked a week totally off for me as far as real productivity. On the Wednesday when the storm was approaching, which I guess I think would have been October 5th, 2016, as I'm recording this, it's about a week and a half ago. That Wednesday night, I had already put up my metal storm shutters and was hunkered down and I had some basic preps some of which I had already had put away a few things I picked up when the storm was still a bit off in the distance. And then it started to look worse and worse as the storm was moving towards my corner of North Florida, and it was a Category 4, and some of the projected courses had it really making a strong turn landward around my area, give or take. And that's a real storm. When you're talking about a Category 4 storm, if that thing comes right at you to where the center, the so-called eyewall of the storm, hits your area, that's tough. I mean, you can do all the basic reps you want, you can have a fairly well-built house and everything, but at a certain point, when you're talking Category 4 and 5 storms, if you're in the epicenter of the worst part of it, sometimes there's just nothing you can do. Your house will be clobbered. Especially considering there are oftentimes like little tornadoes that pop up inside of that area of the storm as well. So my wife and I were looking at that and we were listening to as they started to basically say that uh, almost our entire area should have evacuated or should evacuate. They actually said the following day, they said basically Thursday morning people should evacuate. And so we made the executive decision to wake up our kids and basically bug out. So there we were. Myself, my wife, our two children, also my elderly mother-in-law, and my daughter's two pet bunny rabbits in a couple of vehicles to to have all the people and all the stuff we brought with us. And we basically drove across the state and ended up hunkering down at my aunt's house near the Gulf Coast of Florida. And there we stayed for several nights and then came back on Saturday the 8th after the storm had passed. And we really lucked out. Now, a lot of people who don't really know hurricanes are kind of poo-pooing the media for hyping this one up. And I'm sorry, very often the media does overhype things, including storms. But this one really could have very easily been way worse than it was. And what ended up happening was, 
as the storm, I guess maybe on Friday of that week, got up towards my neck of the woods, two things happened around the same time as it neared my town's latitude, which ended up saving us from having a full-blown Katrina situation. One was the storm actually weakened a little bit from a Category 4 to a 3, which is still a significant serious storm, but obviously it's a little bit less powerful. And then also the course of the storm changed and went more from being north-northwest to north-northeast, and so it it didn't come hard inland when it passed by my area, as it was projected to have possibly done, you know, earlier. And so those two things, the fact that the storm was a little bit, the center of the storm was a little bit further out from the coast and it weakened slightly, those two things saved the northern Atlantic coast of Florida from having a full-on Katrina situation. Now, it still was pretty bad for a lot of people close to the beach. Luckily, I'm, I'm several miles inland even from the intercoastal waterway and my neighborhood's on sort of high ground, so I didn't have anything resembling any flood threat or anything like that. But downtown St. Augustine, the waterfront area, and Anastasia Island, I I know plenty of people who had severe damage to their homes, either from flood or from debris being blown around or both. And in addition, there are stretches of the fabled beachfront road A1A that are, are just gone. In particular, I've seen pictures of just a few miles south of here in the Flagler Beach area, there are whole segments of A1A that the storm just took them. So this was a storm with a New Testament name and some Old Testament attitude. And we really lucked out that it wasn't as bad as it could have been. And we heard from friends who stayed in town by Saturday morning that our neighborhood looked pretty good and our home didn't look like it had been damaged. And so Saturday afternoon, we drove home. And I kid you not, when we got home, our power was already back on. And there, I was so grateful for that because I was taking it for granted that we'd have no power for at least several days, if not longer. And, you know, it's not the end of the world. I, I've got preparations to deal with that and everything. But still, it's obviously kind of a pain in the ass and makes things a little bit complicated and uncomfortable for a while. Now, many other parts of my town remained without power for several days, but for whatever reason, my neighborhood, I guess, however it's related to the power grid of the town and whatever, we were just one of the first areas that got fixed. So that was great. Extremely grateful that nothing happened to my home and my neighborhood really wasn't that bad other than some trees down here and there. Obviously, extremely lucky and grateful my power was even already back on by the time I drove home. But it was still a lot of time and a lot of work dealing with everything. You know, we had bugged out for several days. We had to pack and unpack everything. When we got home, there were a couple trees down in our backyard. And I had to deal with getting those chopped up and dragged out to the curb. And we had to help friends and neighbors and and people that we knew in town who had worse problems than us and We help that and have been trying to help out neighbors and people in town in any way we can. And of course, work for me was canceled a bunch of days because of the storm. And so all this together, long story short, it was a successful bug out. It was not nearly as bad as it very easily could have been. But yeah, it definitely threw a monkey wrench into my Dangerous History podcast work schedule. So trying to recover from that. And looking ahead, I still want to get two more regular episodes done this month. 
I'm planning on having the next regular Dangerous History podcast episode be an episode on the Norman Conquest of England, this being, this month, the 950th anniversary of the Battle of Hastings. And then also, towards the end of the month, and I'm going to try and get it done so I can release it maybe a day or two before Halloween, I'm going to be doing a Halloween special. Actually, I'm going to be doing a two-part Halloween special. And in these Halloween specials, I'm going to be sharing, reading some older scary stories and poems, which are, you know, from a hundred years or more ago in most cases, which of course are in the public domain. So I have no copyright issues with reading them on the show. And it'll be kind of combining scary stuff with history, sort of like what we're doing with this movie review here. And I'm going to be doing the first part of the Halloween historical scary stories and poems episode as a regular dangerous history podcast episode. And I'm going to be doing part two of it as a Patreon bonus episode just for my Patreon supporters. Speaking of which I've got a whole bunch of Patreon shout outs and thank yous to express in this episode. I've got an absolute embarrassment of riches of awesome individuals who have stepped up to help support the show over at patreon.com slash prof CJ. So huge thanks go out to David, James, Jim, Thomas, Stuart, Rayner, Joshua, Ryan, Jeff, Jacob, Dylan, Peter, Kathleen, MJ, Harry, and Jason. Thank you all for helping to support the show via Patreon. And remember, if you sign up to support the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode via Patreon, You'll have access to special bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes available nowhere else. And you will also be able to join the private Facebook group, Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. And of course, I'll thank you by name in the next episode I produce after you've signed up. I also have to give out a big thank you related to my Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list. And thanks go to Ken, longtime listener and longtime fan and supporter of the show. And Ken ordered me up, actually right before the hurricane, so their arrival at my house was delayed by a few days. But they made it. They made it. Ken was kind enough to order me up a bunch of books off of my Amazon DHP wish list. So big thanks to Ken for the following books. Wedge, The Secret War Between the FBI and CIA, The Culture of the Cold War, Ersatz in the Confederacy, Upon the Altar of the Nation, In Search of Enemies, The Money and the Power, The Making of Las Vegas and Its Hold on America, and The Individual is Rising. I think that's all of them, Ken. My apologies if I missed one. Just a giant pile of books from Ken. Very good stuff. Very, very much appreciate it. And uh, any of you are welcome to help me out as well. If you've got a horrible problem, like some extra money laying around or some extra Amazon gift card credit laying around that you just don't know what to do with, well, you can click on the link in the show notes for this episode or any of my recent episodes and see my DHP Amazon wish list and order me something up if you feel so inclined. And I'll thank you for it in the next episode I make after I've received it. Also, if you order me up a used book, they don't usually do like gift notes in there to tell me who it's from. So feel free to, if you want me to know who you are, if you order me a used book, feel free to email me or contact me on social media. Let me know. And uh, I'm more than happy to give credit to the right person when I when I receive a gift from somebody. All right, so on to my review of Ravenous. As always, when I do a DHP movie review, warning, plot spoilers. 
If you're someone who can't stand plot spoilers, and I'm not one of these people myself, I don't think it's a big deal. If it's a good movie, it's still a good movie. But some people are real big on they don't want any plot spoilers before they see a movie. If that's you, then I'd recommend that maybe you watch the movie first, if you've not already seen it, before you listen to the rest of this episode. However, if you've already seen the movie, or if you're someone like me who doesn't really mind plot spoilers much, as long as it's still a good, interesting movie and a good enough story, then by all means, listen onward. Here is my review of Ravenous. The film opens with the famous quote from Friedrich Nietzsche, which is sometimes translated slightly differently, but the gist of it's always the same. And the quote is, He that fights with monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. This quote is followed by a much shorter quote, two words, Eat me, attributed, if I remember correctly, to Anonymous. After those quotes fade out, a sequence set during the Mexican-American War of the 1840s ensues, which shows a U.S. Army captain named John Boyd, played by Pierce, who is going to be the protagonist of the film, being decorated for heroism in battle. After he's decorated, he is grossed out when all the officers at the ceremony start chowing down on very rare steaks, and he then goes and vomits. It's revealed over maybe the first third or so of the film in a series of flashbacks that Boyd actually panicked and played dead in battle and that he was taken into a Mexican army camp along with a lot of actual dead bodies, but that he then managed to capture the Mexican commanders single-handedly. Apparently, he accidentally ingested a lot of blood from the bodies that were piled up on top of him, and this gave him a combination of unnatural courage and strength and that sort of thing, which we'll get back to that whole concept a little bit later. After the dinner, the general who decorated Boyd reveals in a private conversation that he knows that Boyd really isn't a hero and that he's actually a coward, and that this is why Boyd, despite just being promoted and decorated, is being sent to a small crappy fort called Fort Spencer that is in the middle of nowhere in the Sierra Nevada mountains in California. A fort that apparently exists primarily to serve as an outpost guarding a route through the mountains that the settlers that were then starting to stream west were using. Now, when Boyd travels out to his new post, he finds that it's a very small garrison, mostly consisting of kind of screw-ups, weirdos, outcast, island of misfit toy type soldiers. And there are also a couple of local Indians who are there who are... I guess, sort of scouts and assistants for the fort and their brother and sister. The commanding officer of Fort Spencer is a man named Colonel Hart, who is played by Jeffrey Jones. Again, think about Rooney from Ferris Bueller's Day Off to picture the guy. And Hart is intelligent and bookish and a little bit cynical about his being posted to such an obscure outpost, but he's apparently making the best of the time by reading a lot. He's got an extensive personal library. Not long after Boyd's arrival at Fort Spencer, a mysterious stranger shows up in the middle of the night, and he's almost passing out, and he's delirious, and the garrison takes him in, and they do their best to get him warm and revived and taken care of. And when the man comes to, 
He speaks with a Scottish accent and introduces himself as Calhoun. He's played by actor Robert Carlyle, an actor originally from Scotland, probably best known for his roles in films like Train Spotting and The Full Monty. And he played a villain in one of the more recent Bond films. I just don't remember which one. Calhoun tells a story that he was part of a wagon train of settlers going through the mountains that ended up getting stranded in the mountains in severe winter. And he says that his group was misled on what route to take by a man named Colonel Ives, who was acting as a guide for them, and that as a result, the group got stuck in the mountains in horrible winter for several months and ended up hunkering down in a cave, and eventually, long story short, resorted to cannibalism to survive. Now, Calhoun says that they initially only ate people who died, you know, of malnourishment or exposure, and thus were already dead, and that they kind of reluctantly were doing this, but that then someone, and he implicates Colonel Ives for this, started to kill people off rather than just waiting for them to die first in order to eat them. And Calhoun says that he left the cave when there were only two others alive besides himself, Colonel Ives and a woman. Now, Colonel Hart says that they have to send out an expedition to try to rescue this woman if they're able to. While they're getting ready to plan this, the male Indian at the fort warns Colonel Hart about the Wendigo legend, and he connects it to cannibalism in this variation of the legend, and says that the Indians believe that when a man eats another man, he takes on additional strength, sort of like the spirit of the guy that he's eating, and almost sort of in a way reminds me of in Highlander when you If you're a Highlander and you cut off another immortal's head, you kind of get their power added to yours. And the Indian then goes on to say that in addition to taking on this additional strength, there's a downside in that the one who's committed cannibalism becomes insatiably hungry. And that the more human flesh he eats, the stronger he gets, but also the hungrier he gets. Colonel Hart says something like, they don't actually do this anymore, do they? And the Indian replies something to the effect of, hey, the white man eats the body of Christ on Sunday, which is kind of an interesting and amusing point. I've come across actual examples of this in history in in a few places, you know, reading about Christian missionaries going into some previously uncontacted part of the world in in some obscure jungle in Africa or South Asia or the Pacific or something, and the natives get weirded out because the Christian mythology includes the ritual of communion. And, you know, there are just some amusing interactions, to put it mildly. Most of the garrison sets off to try to find the remnants of Calhoun's party. And Calhoun himself accompanies them in order to act as a guide. And they leave behind, I think, only one soldier to kind of literally hold the fort, and they also leave behind the female Indian, but all the rest, including Boyd and Colonel Hart, go along um, on this expedition. By the way, the scenery during a lot of these parts of the film, and really for much of it, is absolutely gorgeous. Beautiful rugged mountains and forests and all this sort of thing, and 
Interestingly, according to the interwebs, it was actually filmed not in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California, but in a combination of some mountains in Mexico and some mountains in Slovakia. But either way, it's gorgeous scenery. And on their journey, one member of the expedition has an accident where he falls and he hurts himself badly in the abdomen. He's got a wound and they do their best to patch him up. But then that night, in the middle of the night, as they're sleeping in their tent, This wounded soldier is woken up by Calhoun licking his wound, and Calhoun is then bound. You know, he's either cuffed or has his hands tied, I forget which, and one of the other soldiers, the only one that's sort of like a tough, competent soldier, has him on a leash at that point, and so they continue on. Now, as they get closer to the cave where Calhoun's party had stayed, Calhoun begins acting more and more weird, erratic, frantic, and Colonel Hart sends Boyd, along with one other soldier, the the guy I mentioned before who's the only one, I think his name was Private Reich, the only one that's actually kind of a competent soldier out of the whole garrison, he sends the two of them into the cave to go investigate. And inside they find lots of human remains, but no one alive. And based on some of the stuff they find in there, they figure out that the man who's been calling himself Calhoun actually is Colonel Ives. Now outside, Calhoun slash Ives gets out of his restraints and is able to retrieve a weapon he had hidden outside of the cave and in a a scene of kind of fighting and, and chasing and whatever, Ives ultimately kills every member of the expedition except for Boyd. In the melee, Boyd actually shoots Ives in the torso with a musket, but Ives gets right back up. Ives corners Boyd on the edge of a cliff, and Boyd, rather than face having Ives kill him and eat him, Boyd chooses to simply leap off of the cliff. He lucks out to some extent. He has his fall broken by a bunch of massive trees, And this allows him to survive the fall, but he's badly hurt, including a compound fracture to his leg. And turns out he's fallen right next to the body of another soldier who fell off the cliff in the fight with Ives. And eventually, Boyd ends up eating a little bit of that soldier's flesh in order to stay alive and gain strength and recover. And this does allow him to live and eventually make it back to the fort. When he gets back, he finds Martha, which is what they call the female Indian at the fort, and he asks her about stopping himself from being a Wendigo. And she basically says, no, you can't do that. Once you start eating human flesh, that's it. The only way to stop it is your own death. So already Boyd is dealing with, he knows that he's got this hunger now, for human flesh, but he is a guy who apparently has some decent morals, and so he's doing his best to resist the urges. Boyd tells his story to a general, the same one who had sent him to Fort Spencer in the earlier part of the film, and the general tells him he needs to change his story to something less fantastic. They then introduce Boyd to the new commanding officer for the fort, a colonel who ends up being none other than Colonel Ives, who now looks a little bit different. He's cleaned up, and of course he's clad in a military uniform, and he's no longer speaking with a Scottish accent. In the presence of the other officers, 
Colonel Ives pretends to be meeting Boyd for the first time and acts like nothing is amiss whatsoever. And Boyd, of course, is totally aghast at this, and he actually collapses involuntarily. Boyd tells the general who Ives is, and the general just doesn't believe him. Boyd finds himself kind of losing his sanity as he's terrified of Ives, and he also has, of course, his own Wendigo hunger for human flesh that he's battling. And in a private conversation, Colonel Ives reveals to Boyd that, in fact, cannibalism cured him of tuberculosis. And after a conversation that turns into an argument, they get into a tussle, and what ends up happening is the other members of the garrison come out, see the fight, and interpret it as Boyd is going crazy and attacking this colonel for no reason, and as a result, they take Boyd prisoner. Now, while Boyd is being held captive, another soldier and also a horse get killed, and this is blamed on Boyd. Martha, the Indian woman, is then sent to go get the general, who had already left by this point. And she's supposed to get the general and bring him back so that they can, I don't know, go, go through whatever procedures they need to to court-martial Boyd. Now, once Martha is gone on her errand to go retrieve the general from whatever the fort was called, it's, you know, the larger fort, um, next one up the road. Once she's gone, Colonel Ives makes a stew out of the recently killed soldier. And it's eventually revealed, you know, this is one of my larger plot spoilers, that it wasn't Ives who killed this particular soldier, but it was actually Colonel Hart, i.e. Ed Rooney, who did it. And obviously, he's not actually dead, even though it had been implied that he had been killed by Calhoun back outside of, of the cave during all that fracas. Turns out he had been only badly wounded by Calhoun slash Ives, almost killed, but then had been revived through, you guessed it, cannibalism. Hart says to Boyd that he and Ives want to recruit him, Boyd, to their kind of cannibal group, and that they plan on setting up shop to prey on settlers as they stream west. Ives talks to him further about this, and he says they're planning on recruiting the general as well. They think it'll be good for their cause to have someone so high-ranking on their side to kind of help make sure that they don't attract too much attention. Now, to put pressure on Boyd to get him to join the cause, Ives badly wounds him with a knife and gives him no choice but to eat some of the human stew in order to save his own life. Boyd resists the urge for a while, but then as his wound begins to take his life, he eventually chows down on the human stew, and he recovers, of course, and then as the general is on his way to the fort, Hart, apparently bothered by his conscience of all the things that he's done, actually lets Boyd loose when Ives is out of the room and gives Boyd a knife and asks Boyd to kill him, and Boyd obliges. Then Ives comes in, and Boyd and Ives have a really nasty, brutal fight, and it ends with Boyd ultimately managing to wrestle both of them into a large steel bear trap, which then triggers and closes over both of them, and they're both impaled and eventually die. Martha and the general, she's retrieved, arrive back just as Ives and Boyd are dying from the bear trap which I think was in like a barn or a stable-type building. Now, once they're back inside the fort, the general immediately walks into the mess hall and sees no one there, but sees a big, apparently good-smelling 
pot of stew on the fire, and he immediately begins sampling the human stew. Meanwhile, Martha discovers the bodies of Boyd and Ives, and she just immediately turns around and leaves the fort. The film ends with a shot from above of the two men's bodies, Ives and Boyd, bloody and tangled and dead in the bear trap. And, of course, you're left to wonder what ultimately ends up happening with the general, since he unwittingly, of course, but he did sample the human stew. So that's a basic synopsis. Now, some of my thoughts on the movie, I have to say, I've liked this film since I saw it when I was a teenager when it first came out. I was, I think, 17 or 18 years old, depending on what time of year this movie came out. I was either a junior or a senior in high school, and I didn't, I didn't bother to look up what month of 99 it came out. But if it was in the spring, I was still a junior in high school. If it was in the fall, I was in the beginning of my senior year of high school. And I've always been a big fan of horror, whether it's in the form of movies or books or whatever. So when this movie came out, I probably, I'm pretty sure I saw it the opening night. And I liked it. It's a pretty unusual movie in a lot of ways, but I think it's original. And I think it's overall pretty well crafted and well active. It's definitely visually impressive. The movie does cannibalism without getting like way too over the top, just disgusting. And I'm, I'm somebody who thinks it's lazy and ultimately not effective when horror movies just simplistically go for over the top, gross out blood and guts. Not that I have a problem with that when it's done correctly and done strategically and, and done sparingly so it doesn't just become a parody of itself. I think it can be done well, but very often, excessive blood and guts is simply used to cover up for lack of things like a good script, compelling characters, good dialogue, and, and genuine fear. There's a quote from Stephen King where he said something like, Terror is the finest emotion, and so when possible, I always try to evoke terror. And if I can't evoke terror, I'll then go to trying to evoke horror. And if I can't evoke horror, then I'll go to kind of plan C, which is the gross out. That's not an exact quote, but it's pretty similar to something uh, Stephen King wrote. I think he wrote that in his nonfiction book, Dance Macabre, which was published first in the early 80s. And I very much agree with that. I'm actually not that squeamish about movie violence and movie blood and guts and whatever. But I also see it as kind of lazy and is not effective at really creating genuine feelings of dread and terror and unease and all that stuff as more kind of elegant forms of fear. And Ravenous is a cannibal movie that really doesn't have that many explicit images of cannibalism in it. In fact, much of the cannibalism in the movie is actually implied. It's sort of done off camera or something like that. And there's certainly plenty of blood in the murder and fight scenes that take place in the movie, to be sure. But it's not like some low-budget, kind of simple-minded cannibal movies that are out there. Also, I've got to say, I love the film's soundtrack. It's very weird. It's kind of a combination of period music from what you would think of with the style and instruments of the mid-19th century sort of American frontier, and then mixed with more modern kind of elements. It's just, it's hard to describe. It's, it's weird, but I like it. Now, the film was not a success. According to the interwebs, its budget was about $12 million, and it only made about $2 million, so it was a box office flop. 
Roger Ebert was one of the few critics who actually gave it a pretty good review. He gave it three out of four stars, but most critics did not agree with this. And if you go on Rotten Tomatoes, at least as of this recording, the film only has a 43% there. Interestingly, the audience score for the film on Rotten Tomatoes says 79% like it. So you have a clear divergence, and I guess the film has sort of a cult following of people like me, maybe some of you, who appreciate it for what it is. And aside from the surface themes of cannibalism, kind of mixing in with Wendigo mythology, and in some ways even sort of vampire mythology is mixed in there too a little bit, there are some deeper themes relating to American history in general and American history specifically in the era of westward expansion. The first theme I want to mention that I picked up below the surface is the whole idea of a moral man resisting doing bad things, even when they're very alluring and addictive on some level, which is cannibalism in the film literally, and then sort of conquest slash power domination metaphorically. And there's a fair amount of internal turmoil that is shown with the character of Boyd as he does his best on repeated occasions to try to resist the urge, once he's had human flesh, to try to resist the hunger to have more. And so you've got a moral man trying to resist doing things that he knows are wrong. And I'll just drop in a very brief clip, audio clip from the movie, when Colonel Ives and Captain Boyd are having a conversation about this, and Ives is trying to, almost sort of like Darth Vader trying to recruit Luke Skywalker, he's kind of trying to get him to join the dark side of the cannibal club. Here I am, one year later, feeling more alive than ever before. And that's what surprises me about you, Boyd. You've tasted it. Felt its power. Yet you're resisting. Why? Because it's wrong. Ah! Morality. The last bastion of a coward. So I think that gives you a little bit of a sense of it. And then there's also the theme of American expansionism and manifest destiny. And here is a clip where that, is, that point is made explicitly by Colonel Ives, again, when he's trying to recruit... Boyd to their cannibal club and telling him about the plan to set up shop and just prey on settlers. And he compares it to the American expansion overall and that it's kind of a parallel sort of a thing. So have a listen. You see, that's why we need others. You for one. General Slauson. Of course, with no wish to recruit everyone, we have enough mouths to feed as it is. We just need a home. And this country is seeking to be whole. Stretching out its arms and consuming all it can. And we merely follow. And I have to say, this movie dealt with that theme multiple times over the course of the film. But that's the one place where they make it kind of explicit like that. And I give it credit. It's one of the relatively few mainstream American movies I know of in the last few decades to bring up these sorts of things in a critical sort of way to point out that a lot of things like 
manifest destiny and so on are really just euphemisms for some really disturbing practices and behaviors and so on, whether it's the treatment of the Indians or some of the things done to the natural environment, to the war against Mexico, which was really just a pure and simple land theft war. And I give credit to the writers and makers of this movie that they were able to bring some of these themes up in a thoughtful sort of a way, and of all things, in the context of a cannibal movie. Overall, I have to say, this is not a great film, but I think it's a good one. Maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of like a B- minus if I was grading it. I think it could have been better. I think there were certain themes and characters that could have been developed a little bit more. Boyd, I would have liked maybe, I don't know how they could have worked it in the movie, but maybe some more backstory on him, because I was wondering the whole time where this guy got his moral compass, what factors caused him to join the military in the first place. I I mean, I suppose it's outside the scope of what you could do. The movie, I think, was about an hour and 40 minutes long, and it's tough to make a horror movie much longer than that and get away with it. But Nonetheless, I thought there were certain themes and character elements that perhaps could have been fleshed out a little bit better. The acting was superb. I liked the soundtrack. Maybe not everybody else did. And I thought the movie was well well made from a technical point of view. But I thought it just didn't quite flesh out enough of the subtext as I would have liked. Although maybe it's better that it didn't, because not every filmmaker is able to do that without it turning into some clunky, didactic, kind of Ayn Rand sort of a thing where it's just the most awkward, unnatural dialogue and whatever that you can think of. I think this film stops short of going that far, even in the few cases like the clips I played before where where they were kind of blatantly talking about some of these themes. I have to say, I think the movie deserves something more in the neighborhood of an 80% on Rotten Tomatoes rather than a 43. But all in all, I'd say that if you're looking for a good, somewhat unusual horror movie to watch this time of year, being that as I record and release this episode, it's October, of course, it's a podcast, so people might potentially listen to this episode anytime in the future. But if you're listening to this either in October of 2016 when I'm recording it, or perhaps in an October in the future... Or even if you're just someone who likes a good horror movie all year round, like I am. I mean, I probably watch more horror movies in October than I do other months of the year, but I do watch them all throughout the year. If you're interested in this type of movie, I think Ravenous is a movie that deserves to be on your list if you've not seen it before, or also if you have, but it's been a while. It's an interesting movie, a different movie, but like many good or great horror movies, it has subtext going on on several different levels besides just the surface level of the actions happening to the characters and the horror itself, which in this case, of course, is cannibalism. And I'll just leave you with my preferred translation of the full text of that Nietzsche quote from the beginning of the film. Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. And if you gaze long enough into the abyss, the abyss will gaze back into you. If you liked what you heard in this podcast, there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist, to improve, and grow. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast in any way you can. Social media, online discussion boards, word of mouth, whatever but to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it. Also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. 
and you can help the show financially several different ways. One of the best is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me if you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon so that I can verify you're a supporter and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.